The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Don't be blocking Jerry. Are you? I know. He's the best. And we are locked. here. I've just, I'm blocking Greg, which is also very sad. I know. I'll just bring down like this. (laughs) Um, Greg. We are live. We don't seem to have, we don't seem to have Mike Pesca, uh, but I assume he'll show up at some point. Um, It is Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. It is five o'clock in the afternoon. Satyrs around the country will be starting relatively soon, most of them on this deranged piece of software, Zoom. Um, uh, uh, we don't are not allowed to have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we have Virginia Heffernan, uh, who uh, is actually great fun. And we, I think, will, oh, there's Mike Pesca. Let's bring him on because we're going to have Mike Pesca in lieu of fun as well. It's nice to meet you, Virginia. Nice to meet you, too. I, so mean, you, you're, I like what your family has done with cable television back there, your succession family. I know, it's pretty great, right? And I'm like <laughs> super, I'm like, I made the same joke yesterday, so I'm totally going to get called out on this by our fans, but the, I'm like very well matched, I feel like. They're all dressed like I'm, like, oh, in, my, yeah. like, I'm in my, like, I've been wearing this hoodie for three days. You're in a gray flannel <laughs> hoodie. You're in a gray flannel. <laughs> you look like you're ready to take over right-wing media. So yeah, exactly. Um, are you in Brooklyn Heights, by the way? I am. How do you know? Oh, I just kind of was like, I just like looked at your Twitter profile or something, and it said that you were in Brooklyn Heights. I live in, I live not far away. So I was just, oh, wow. I was wondering, well, I'm not there anymore. I'm like, I've been in Cape Cod for four weeks now, but oh, I'm curious lovely. if you guys are doing okay. Um, yes, it is. It feels like Silkwood whenever you come, you know, come back into the house. Um, it feels like you need to scrub down for surgery. And I almost, I don't know, does anyone else feel like they can feel the bugs on themselves? Pesca, are you in New York? I feel yeah. like a druggie, like my arms feel like they're literally crawling with bugs. Have you also coincided this with uh, kicking the booze? Is that what's going on? <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> I managed to kick the booze lo- like a couple of tragedies ago. But oh, I am. Man. But but I definitely uh, something is going on. I think I'm trying to sensitize my body, you know, so that I can detect the early symptoms. Are you guys waking up at 4 a.m. and saying, is this a panic attack or is this COVID? No, I'm not afraid of that. I wake up at 4 a.m. I was just telling Quinta of this, of, of, uh, of lawfare. I was just saying, I was like, no, I wake up, I go to bed at nine and then I wake up at one, uh, one o'clock to four o'clock and just am like completely consumed by like world, by like what the future is for our world. Not whether I am going to get sick, but just yeah. like, yeah. How is your sleep, Pasca? Like a baby, I think that, uh, meaning I wet myself frequently. No, I uh, I have, do you know this about me? I have anandamide. I mean, it's self-diagnosed. So it's what some research researchers call the bliss molecule. I don't really experience anxiety like most other people do. I experience what I consider to be rational anxiety, 
which drives my girlfriend crazy because the implication is clearly everyone else's anxiety is irrational. But no, it's all very rational and I understand. Um, I, I can vouch, I can yeah. vouch that I was with Mike on um, election eve 2016. I don't know if you remember that, but we expected Hillary Clinton would win and she was defeated, it turned out. By Donald Trump, the Republican. That's what happened. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was all very, it was very oh, racing. Yes. Oh, I missed that. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to keep up with so much going on. But anyway, we were sitting next to each other. And I think, um, well, I'll redact her name, but a very prominent journalist said she needed to sell her hard assets and leave the country. And this was the Holocaust. And other people said, um, you know, that they needed to uh, join the Muslim registry, though they weren't Muslim, so they would stand I am Spartacus style with all the people Trump despised. Um, and uh, I was fighting tears. And Mike Best came up with, there's some pewter linings here. Pewter linings. <laughs> had, had a list of some right. upsides. And I swear the news had not broken. I mean, we were still counting. They definitely were not done counting Michigan. And Mike had a bunch of upsides. And what, now, I, yeah. do you remember what they were, Pesca, and, and whether any of them has has borne out? Ah, uh, Pewter, the poor man's silver. Exactly, <laughs> I know. What do you get out of in, Pewter linings? In actual, in some actual competitions after bronze, the fourth place medal is the Pewter medal. That is, no, that is true. I've not, I've not made that up. I think maybe I was looking forward to some natural but They don't have a pewter age and they do have a bronze age, my best guy. <laughs> yeah, it is true. I think I was, I was looking forward to some natural experiments, you know, a time with sociology. That's what I am doing now. I'm fascinated by the natural experiments that will occur. Look, I'm like you, I'm a human being. I'm very, I, a friend of mine's uh, dad died today, the person closest mm. to me uh, affected and I live a block from this three hospital complex in Brooklyn and all night you hear the siren. So of course it's very harrowing and saddening, but um, I am also interested in, you know, what happens for this one generation that doesn't, or this one class that doesn't have to take the SAT and won't we be studying them? And if they did better than their, uh, you know, cohorts in the school. And if it turns out, what if it turns out that the SAT was bullshit all along? So, so let me ask you. <laughs> like, you're in a global <laughs> pandemic to prove that? <laughs> there was so, yeah, I had Do you feel like guilty too. about being that sunny about it? Because I actually have a kind of sunny disposition. I know, too. I know you I don't, do. I don't really get like, I mean, it's not that I don't get, you know, down or depressed or whatever, but I do it less than other people do. And I, I find myself relatively cheerful when other people are really down and yeah. I can never decide how, whether that's cause I'm like a heartless uh, person without a soul or whether it's because <laughs> I'm, oh yeah, thanks Kate. <laughs> Nodding vigorously. Or whether it's just because like people actually process information with different amounts of misery. And so I never know, should I feel guilty about this or, and how do you react to being cheerful like in the whistling past graveyards? Hmm. I, I don't oh. think it's just that night. I don't think it's just that. I always, I am the same. And here's how I justify it, which is that nihilism is boring. Like it's really boring. Yeah. If that is yeah. your end goal yeah. and everything is going to suck, then like, and everything is terrible, then that's like the most boring outcome that you could possibly have. And why don't we all just jump off a ledge and like, there's no point in living. And so like, you have mm -hmm. to decide yeah. 
to engage in something else and just make an affirmative decision to make your world what it's going to be. That's how I think about it. Well, I, it doesn't seem like it has yeah, to be a nihilism, pleasure. You don't even have to make. Yes. Go, my. Go ahead. No, it, it doesn't oh, seem like it say... has to be a pleasure pain axis. Sorry to interrupt. Um, uh, but it, um, it's sort of in the in lieu of fun category, which is, <laughs> you know, I don't see you, uh, you either of you as kind of Mary Falstaff types um, or, or myself either. It's more that um, just we try to keep our curiosity alive. So, and, and I will say, do, does any of you have someone that was like felled by Me Too that you still think is worth citing? Because mine is Joey Ito. I know, I love, Kate just flinched. Mine is Joey Ito. I totally Ito. do. I just okay. did. I, I right. think who is your person? Mine is Joey Ito, the former head of the MIT Media Lab who was removed for taking money from Jeffrey Epstein. So this is not someone who mauled little girls. He's not Jeffrey Epstein. He did take money from Jeffrey Epstein knowing that he had been convicted of this first conviction. And damn it, I think Joey Ito is incredibly smart and I don't want to stop citing him even though it might get me blackballed. I want, maybe I should make up a new name. But anyway, the thing that I learned from Joey Ito about this after the 2016 election, and he's a lifetime Zen practitioner, um, you know, born in Japan. So he's real bona fides. He didn't come to it through David Lynch. Um, he, um, he said that, uh, you know, he was talking about Trump kind of systemically in like hacker systems thinking language. And I said, how can you remain so sanguine about this? And he says he has two sides. There's a part of him that's Zen, three hours of meditation. Oh, how interesting. How does a virus work? How does, um, how does, a, how does an autocrat work? He you know, keeps his, his mind alive like that. And then all of a sudden he'll be reduced to a man married to a woman with children who are gonna die, who he cares about, who live a short lifetime and who get one chance on earth and what might happen to them. And these two things live in, you know, live in kind of uneasy juxtaposition with each other, but that makes it still more interesting. You know, I definitely, when I worry about my lungs shutting down or a ventilator shoved down my throat, I, I'm not really ready to say goodbye to this world, you know? Um, so that can be depressing, but then it can be infinitely interesting to think of us as in, in, a, in a primordial battle with microbes. And that's really fascinating. So yes. in lieu of fun, curiosity. Where are you on the primordial battle with microbes issue, Mike? Uh, it doesn't, I'm maybe less of a germaphobe than I should have been. Doesn't phobe <laughs> imply an irrationality? Again, yes. I come to the, and it's very judgmental, this irrational thing. But you're absolutely right, Katie. Nihilism is boring. Nihilism is surrendering of critical thought. And think about everyone who ever lived through a time of plague or a time of uh, problems. And what if, you know, Shakespeare didn't write, was it The Tempest that he wrote? No, he wrote Lear uh, while quarantined uh, during a plague. And think about if Samuel Pepys didn't write his diaries during a plague. And think about if everyone else just decided to shut down and not think. And by the way, it's during these horrible times that all the capitalists go and amass their capital. So if we're not at least trying to keep up with them in terms of thought and not being paralyzed into inaction, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the big pickety disparity between labor and intellect and capital will increase ever more. Ooh, 
I will say, I want to add to Virginia's point really quickly about the Me Too thing, which is the person that I keep wanting to cite to is Louis C.K. Because he has this one great bit that is really good right now, um, which has always been good, but it's especially good right now. This, he has this bit that he did on Conan at one point, and it was just basically like he is talking about being in an airplane flying across the country. And he's at 10,000 feet and the guy next to him takes out his laptop and opens it up and connects to like the plane's internet. And after about 30 minutes of working, the guy can't connect to the internet anymore. And he throws a complete fit, like just screams at the stewardesses and is like freaking out and just like slamming his computer shut and very angry. And Louis C.K. is like, we are experiencing the miracle of flight. We are flying across the country <laughs> at 10,000 feet in a metal tube that weighs millions, like thousands of pounds. Yeah. And we're simultaneously connected to the internet and how quickly we feel like we're owed something. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and like like, we can't survive without it. And yes. like everything is great and nobody's happy. And I just kind of think that that's like what I try to kind of, when I finally do get to sleep, I'm like, I have plenty of food and I'm not near too many people and everything is great and that nobody's happy. He's happy. Like, try to have the moment. Yeah, how so is it? Okay, I, I want to defend. Find, this is I not a good mix, the... Ben, because we are all <laughs> happy. You need, we need to yeah, crossfire it up. Someone dour like Sarah Kenzior. I need her. I think she's good. No, for she my hates spirit. me. She wouldn't have. Oh. <laughs> she, she, like every that is third, a limiting factor. On every that. third tweet is an attack us. on me. But <laughs> yeah. I want to defend the principle of continuing to have intellectual and artistic relations with untouchable people, because, like, um, you know, and aren't we all these days? Well, look, if we're doing it right. I, mean, I grew up when I first got into listening to Renaissance music uh, and and early Baroque music. I stumbled upon this amazing composer of madrigals uh, named uh, Carlo Maria Gesualdo. And Gesualdo, um, the madrigals are particularly interesting because they are really dissonant, and some of them sound like 20th century music. And I was completely fascinated mm. by them. And then I learned that Gisualdo had murdered his wife. And uh, he murdered her on the church steps um, and dragged her body to the church steps and stabbed her to death uh, because he believed, I think falsely, that she was uh, uh, unfaithful. Um, and I have to say, this did not make me like those madrigals less. Mm. And um, I have also grown up listening to Wagner, who was a really bad guy. And, you know, I think if we, if we have a principle that when we cancel somebody from polite society, we throw out everything they've ever done. Hmm. Uh, this is like the Michael a, Jackson thing. If there was like a box that produced all of the Michael Jackson songs and also you had to feed into the box a, like a little boy, to be molested in order to get all the Michael Jackson songs, <laughs> would you do it? Right, I mean, like, like that's like, so it's, I think it's a little different when you're dealing with somebody who gets <laughs> royalties from, from it, but mm. like Roman Polanski is a racist, uh, is a rapist and Chinatown is a great movie. 
And I am not going to apologize for thinking that Chinatown is a great movie, and I'm not going to not watch it. And I, I just think people need to separate, like the appreciation of what somebody is capable of doing from the, uh, from the morality or appropriateness or, uh, you know. Uh, civilized behavior of the person. And I, I just, yeah. that, that, I don't I, think that's that hard. Well, okay. So I- um, So enjoy yeah. Joey Ito. So I was trying, okay. Joey Ito, who we were both clients of the agent that also represented Jeffrey Epstein, John Brockman. And, um, and there were a lot of other kind of alpha males caught in um, sexual- Alpha males like you? Stuff. Mm -hmm. Alpha males like myself, exactly. Um, don't misgender me. I'm an alpha male. No, don't miss um, Greek letter me. I'm alpha. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so um, they. I'm an iota they, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> I say we, right? And you just defer. You. Um, so um, so okay. So many of them were caught in, or you know, perpetrated. Um, certain kinds of sexual harassment and abuse um, and were removed from their um, academic posts while also preaching um, a kind of boring evolutionary psychology, speaking of boring, sort of in the spirit of the intellectual dark web. And I started to, I worked, I started, I sort of thought most about John Searle because he had, he was someone that I had just encountered at a conference. And I decided to figure out whether it sounds like your Baroque um, punk musician was um, sort of a musician first and a murderer second. It wasn't as though his being a musician gave him a calling card to rape people or murder people. Well, I don't know. See with, I mean, you might see with Harvey Weinstein. Okay, I so mean, that's I like Van Gogh's. But when you're a murderer, that's a heck of an identity. It's, it's not exactly. True, but but think about um, but the, but it's more of the mediocrities that interest me. So Les Moonves, for example, in all the accounts of Les Moonves, the most powerful man in the world. Oh, we have to separate the work from the art. He's so powerful in television. Everybody loves Raymond, you know? I think I can live without it. Under the sign of everybody loves Raymond and King of Queens, I don't wanna take it away from him. You got King of Queens on the air. Under the sign of those two sitcoms, we're supposed to countenance all kind of behavior. And that was his calling card. And I also can give up a lot of Merrimax films. I think that those, and, and, uh, and, and even uh, Cubism, you know? I, didn't, I don't hold a huge brief for Picasso, so luckily, um, when it seemed like under the sign of being an artist, he got away with all kinds of scoundrel behavior. It was easy to let go of. On the other hand, Joey Ito, I think, smart guy, didn't need to be the head of, didn't need to be, uh, wasn't using his intelligence to be able to commit crimes or used his work and especially any kind of mediocre work or, or sophistry uh, as a cover for certain kinds of crimes. Where so I start with this? the work. John, John, John Searle was also a sophist, I think. I, I live to prove that the Chinese room is not a very interesting theory um, and thus vindicate his many victims. So I think that the old age old question of separating the artist from the art isn't that interesting a one because we all do it. There's so much art that we can't even know about the who the artist was or what the artist motivations were. 
I mean, the question about Michael Jackson and the feeding little boys into the box. So are we saying that if Michael Jackson's artistic output was that of uh, Ray Parker Jr. or El Barge, it would be a different calculation? No, no, no. The, no, no. the fact is... <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, the fact is that there's not one that is moral and one that is immoral. It's just that it, as a hypothetical, you can assess morality as the way real life plays out with real people having done these songs and also done these bad things. It's not a hype. It's not a question of morality. I mean, I think it's also related to the question of artist and the art. It's closely related to the big thing. Who gets to tell the stories of different communities? And I also find that um, discussion not particularly interesting because the answer, I mean, I think it's worth thinking about really deeply, but if you come up with any other answer other than who gets to tell the stories, the answer is those who tell them well, you've done something wrong. Because I, during this quarantine, I watched Watchmen, which is this great story that's very much about race. And Damon Lindelof was the main uh, auteur behind it. So if you apply the only people to whom the story happened get to tell the story, you'd be wiping away that art. And so whenever we have the big discussion about the book from Oprah's book club and you know that author doesn't get the right to tell the story, I think it really does come down to you shouldn't tell the story well or well enough or enough to the satisfaction of the people in the community. Whereas Don Winslow, who by the way blurbed her book, has been doing this his whole life. And since he does tell it so well, we don't really, I mean, we, we I think, properly dismiss those concerns. It's one of those ethical conundra that I don't really even find such a conundrum. So where, I actually, go ahead, Ben, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, where are you on this, Kate? Oh, I was going to say, so like, I, I think that like you started this out, Mike, by saying that like this age old conundrum of author versus authorship and I, or like, and like author versus the art. And I actually don't think it's an age old conundrum. I think for years, we pretty much ignored the, the concern of authorship and what we teach things as like the art is being completely separate from the author. I mean, this is even like when you like, I mean, when you do a basic lit literature class like in college or anything else you're like well you can't read the intentions of the author those aren't like those aren't on the page those aren't like there all you can do is read this basic this basic like the 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 result right and that does give us a pass in a lot of ways to just accept the art no matter how or from whence it came right or all of the things that might have been terrible about the person living their life mm. that resulted in the artwork being created um to your point, there is this moment in Hamilton where he goes, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, which I think mm -hmm. is like very much something that like, I was like, oh, that is dead on, which is like resonated with an idea that has resonated with me for a long time in answering this question, which is like, there is actually no one who can tell the full story of the author or everything that they were or all of the truth of everything that happened to them or everything that went into the making of the art. They're just not, that's not possible. And it's not just art. That's like the constitution. That's like everything yeah. about, you yeah. know, that's like everything. So, you know, and that's like the, the original drafters of, any, of like any legal, of any kind of legal code or anything like that. Um, and so I think that that's, I think it's actually, I agree with you at the end of the day, Mike, Although I think that there is a different, I just don't think, what, what I think is different now is scale, which is that we now have this internet shaming mechanism that is mm -hmm. like completely changed the way that we can kind of call out people in power. 
um, and kind of make them answer for various things uh, in ways that we never allowed them to do before. And Ben, I know you have things to say about that. Um, oh, can't smelter. Indeed, although I want to pose an anonymous attendee who I will uh, not have on to read this question because uh, he or she is anonymous and I don't believe in anonymity, uh, writes in and says, Virginia, what do you think about the specific issue of Joey Ito letting Epstein visit the MIT campus repeatedly? I went to MIT for undergrad and this aspect of Ito's actions horrify me. There were plenty of undergrads at and around the media lab for Epstein to prey on. I have no idea whether he did so. It's easy to forget that the media lab MIT is a school and not just an institution. That's a very good point. I mean, I that account um, by one of the department secretaries of his visit to the campus, Ito's visit to the campus with Epstein, or sorry, Ito's brought in Epstein, and Epstein was flanked by two what looked like teenage uh, women, girls with Eastern European accents. Um, and the women in the office sort of talked among themselves about how these girls might be addressed to be sure that they were there willingly. Um, and this was ex that, that was extremely interesting to me because there are certain protocols um, to address even on a, on a plane uh, that, that um, uh, flight attendants use to address a potential human trafficking situation. Um, so I think the idea that Joey was overlooking something that other people could easily read as potentially um, you know, a kind of kidnapping against your will trafficking situation that he was willing to overlook that for the meeting and bring a predator on campus where there are teenagers and young women um, and overlook his past conviction. I mean, all of it is, is appalling and almost surreal. Um, I mean, his kind of cold consultation, I don't even know what to say. His cold consultation with Larry, uh, God, what's, I'm forgetting his name, the legal scholar. And, Lessig. And, sorry? Larry, Larry Lessig. Lessig, exactly. Um, about Lessig's own experience as a victim of sexual violence and whether that whether that meant Jer Jerry Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein might get over it um, was also a sort of strange, cold way to go. And I contrasted it with the woman, uh, the, the secretary who turned out to be kind of a whistleblower um, who just had this in initial uncanny, horrified reaction. The same kind of reaction I had when I saw John Searle with a woman 60 years his junior, that's gotta be a record, um, who he brought from Germany, didn't speak English to this conference we were at. The women at the conference were just like, something's wrong, we should get her alone and be sure that she's there of her own free will. Um, and the men said, not my business and you know, not my place. Um, and so the fact that, that Ito didn't have a feeling of unease around um, Epstein's relationships, around his business dealings, doesn't seem to have kicked the tires of those things. It really surprises me. I mean, I, another thing Joey and I have talked about is his um, unesthetic view of the world. He has, he has a difficulty engaging sort of his right brain to see things that might be uncanny to someone who's less mathematical than he is. And I think that it failed him in this case. I think he needed a gloss from someone else, not a lawyer, not a mathematician, not a hacker, not a technologist, to say this is just inhumane it's an inhumane way to treat people and he's still doing it so i'm with you i i i i don't i don't know what ha what happened to joey I, might I, I suggest that maybe that's a particular trait of 
someone who spends three hours meditating and tells themselves, on the one hand, this is interesting. On the Absolutely. other hand, I have Absolutely. a family and I think he who thought, could die from this. I think he thought, yeah. and this is, this is the problem. And this is interesting that and this is where this has led us, that we, you know, without, um, you know, I was listening to Walter Cronkite the other night just for to see how he framed news on, on, on YouTube. And realizing that he just there was such moral punch to how he delivered the news, you know, um, these children are doing drugs and alcohol, you know, just like he, he he never left you any question where he stood. Unlike the Peter Jennings, you know, who could say like AIDS from manual an anal sex and other kinds of digital and whole hands penetration of the rectum, like as if these were just clinical facts, you know. And I feel like we do get too cold. We do get too Joey Ito and think and think like, oh, how interesting that this libertine Epstein has made all this money and also believes he's kind of above moral laws and has a fetish for the Marquis de Sade and, and Humbert Humbert. And that that became interesting and they didn't see a place to put their warm blooded moral convictions. Um, I, I think that in some ways is part of the problem. And I toggle like you guys between a left brain and right brain analysis of things. So. If it's any, if it's any consolation, just really briefly, uh, Virginia, like that is you, what you're, you're saying is very consistent with what I've heard from people inside MIT and Harvard that like dealt with him. So like, this is like everything, like everything jives in terms of like him being like a good person and doing a lot of great things. And then also there being this other, this other kind of like, how did he not ask more questions? Type mm -hmm. of stuff. What do you guys, Ben and Mike, think about that idea that you're that there's something maybe, um, you know, that Mike that maybe you needed to slow down on election night and just be with the room that we're feeling kind of crushed, you know, instead of turning it into an opportunity for analysis. Well, I was pretty with the room to be honest. I okay. I, I I was not finding the the pewter linings of that particular cloud, and frankly, still haven't. Um, so I'm going to defer to Mike on the answer to that question. Yeah, I think that maybe, um, by the way, the pewter linings were, and here are some good things. It's more of the case of, okay, maybe it turns out the pipes or the wall chippings that we've all been eating aren't lead. Maybe they're pewter, and I don't know if that will hurt <laughs> us as bad. There's some lead and pewter, right? Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, I, I was on stage, and so I was hosting a show, and so I had this... Uh, I had this need, this uh, primal need kick in to be the show host. And mm -hmm. once everything was sliding down into what I would define as, okay, this isn't a show that the people came for, I tried to pull it back. Um, you know, it's funny though, I think that we started by talking about all of this and taking uh, bad, taking interesting ideas from bad sources. That's maybe one of the themes hmm. we're talking hmm. about. And then we went on to talk about separating the artist from the art. I'm thinking more of the delight in taking not even an idea. So, so, so far the madrigals are great, right? And the, and Ito's ideas are great. What about the idea that might not be great? It might be from a bad source, might be from another source, but you can't quite dismiss it. I'll give you an example. So I was oh, talking about yeah. I was talking about Thomas Massey, the uh, the the representative from Kentucky who tried to make everyone huddle together to you know not pass the stimulus, maybe give each other coronavirus. And I played an extensive interview he did with a uh, Cincinnati radio station, and it was just full of uh, just horrible um, justifications and half truths. But then he started talking about 
the mail-in ballot and how proud he was that he thwarted the mail-in ballot. And he said, you know, the problem with the mail-in ballot, and it's an unsolvable problem, is one great thing about democracy is that we have a secret ballot. And the reason for this is you could always bribe someone and then they could go around your bribe. They could take your money, but still not fulfill their end of the promise because the voting was in secret. With a mail-in ballot, that dynamic no longer exists. Now, I don't think that's a good reason. I think all the other reasons outweigh this, but I do have to say, at least as, I don't know, call it at best sophistry, I said to myself, that's a non simply rebuttable argument. That's not so easy to rebut. Some of us here are uh, political, are professors of the law, and maybe they have an easier rebuttal. But my point is not so much, hey, let's talk about if this one aspect of the mail-in ballot does offer a little more jeopardizing of an election. My point is, I was actually excited to be challenged by it. And I think, I don't know, most people, I hate to generalize, but definitely most people have a podcast, and the podcast has to fit into some ideology. Most people would... I think be discomfited by that. I just got excited by it. I'm like, this is the worst arguer or the guy who puts out the worst arguments, but he did lay something in my lap that I had to grapple with. And I enjoyed that as an intellectual process. Yeah. So I'm with you on that. I think that there's, I think the, you know, there are a lot of ways to divide the world into two categories of people, but one of them that I definitely subscribe to is the people who feel that they have nothing to learn from their enemies or their opponents and the people who kind of relish in what they can glean from their opponents. But I distinguish between that issue and the issue of, you know, whether something, how much we have to cancel something that is conceitedly great because we've canceled the individual in question. So right. like to, to, to take a, a, an example, and I don't just mean separating the art from the artist, but like the example that always comes up of this in political discussion is Carl Schmitt, right? A theorist, a German theorist. Of, Literally the last four days of my life, I've been in like all these podcasts and everyone is talking about Carl Schmitt. And I'm like, is it Nazi Germany again? Like, I, is I, that why he's coming up? Like, I don't understand. Carl Schmitt started coming up during the, for the second Bush administration because people started thinking, I don't know why, that Bush was very Schmittian, which is very silly because Bush was very non-Schmittian. But... Um, you know, Schmidt is a genuine theorist of government and the executive power. He's somebody who people read and learn from to this day. Um, and he's uh, also not just a theorist of power, but a theorist of a kind of executive power that we're scared of and embarrassed by now. And by the way, he joined the Nazi party at some point. Um, and, you know, so whenever you cite Carl Schmidt or talk about Carl Schmidt in anything other than the most disparaging context, people will kind of raise their eyebrows and wonder, are you a Schmidtian? Are you how- are, are you a Nazi? Nazi curious, are you? And in, if you're Adrian Vermeule, that kind of is exciting. And if you're anyone else, it's uncomfortable. But to me, it's non, it's, it's a like I don't I don't get off on the notoriety, but I do think there are things we can learn from people who are 
in many ways repugnant and made repugnant choices and theorized repugnant things and got some things right along the way. It just, I don't find that an especially challenging or difficult idea. I Can I tell you something? I, I, I'll let you guys go, but there is this podcast. Uh, early on, I said, what are the good podcasts on Corona? I just started listening to all of them. And there was one from the upper reaches of Maine, a Corona podcast, which isn't my favorite form. It's like two hours and he reads a whole article and then reacts to it. But it's not bad. I mean, he knows some things and he was very much on social distancing early on. What's the name? And uh, uh, I'll try to find the name, but maybe you'll, after I tell you the kicker, uh, you won't want to, you won't, don't want them to get the pub. Anyway, the kicker is pretty much Nazism. It turns out the Delhi Beast Ooh. did an article on the guy and he's, I think he maybe would call himself something other than a white nationalist, but he seems to be a white nationalist. And I listened to this podcast and he doesn't like China, but he doesn't seem to dislike China more than Peter Navarro does. Maybe Peter mm -hmm. Navarro is also a white nationalist, but I haven't dropped it from my rotation cost. And, and I have found out he has this wide reach and he gets good studies. And before the tiger in the zoo was uh, affected with the virus, I learned from him that cats mm -hmm. can get it and ferrets can get it, but ducks can't. It's just an exact, it's not even uh, a step and a half away from the example of Schmidt you just cited. <laughs> well, I think this is so, a thing yeah. Schmidt that brings this together and probably Virginia is about to make this same point. So I'll just make it brief. Maybe not. But, like, the thing that brings this together then is that like Schmidt, you like, we like, here is a great theorist. You can like, like as an objective level, if you didn't know that he was involved with this nefarious movement that murdered uh, millions of people, uh, that there would be like some level at which you would decide to like just not pay any attention to him, but that he actually had valuable ideas. And so what is the, what is the question? And I would actually love to pose this to Virginia because for me, as a scientist and a person who loves art and who study is like kind of, I feel like I like, bridge the gap between is like when is it like when is art a public good and when is science a public good and mm -hmm. when are these both public goods that are public goods and we shouldn't pay attention to authorship mm -hmm. um and so like this mm -hmm. actually gets into the Mengel studies and like all of that other kind of stuff mm -hmm. which is kind of dark and I don't know that we really want to go there mm -hmm. but I do think it's like an interesting question which is kind of like how do you decide what these where these parameters lie um, you know, it's yeah. one thing when it's a ballet or a play mm -hmm. or whatever, and it's like, or like, you know, or a painting and it's another thing. And it's just like, you know, and it's cheating on your spouse and womanizing and raping mm -hmm. people, although that's terrible. It's another thing when you're complicit in the death of like, like millions of people. Yeah. Um, so we, we have a newer example than even the, the great uh, Les Moonves in, um, in, in T.S. Eliot, whose uh, letters to his, um, let's see, are her letters back? Yes, no, letters to his platonic mistress um, have just been unveiled at Princeton. I think there, there's all kinds of nastiness around these letters, which is, they've just been unsealed. Um, and the cool. letters reveal um, Eliot as something we've, a lot of us have come to understand that he was, which is kind of this ethic of abstinence and, you know, oh, I can't, and I'm doing something and I can't quite do this and sort of missing life. And then also priggish, brittle defensiveness around this. And the the thing that happened to me with Eliot when these this stuff first started coming out, even before these letters, 
and it happened to me with Philip Larkin, was I liked their work, not because it was mainstream, not because they told a story well and they were white guys and had the right to do it, but because they told the story from the margins. They had perverse imaginations that put pressure on my thinking. They wouldn't, have, wouldn't be artists if they weren't idiosyncratic. I thought they were both twisted motherfuckers. I wanted to hear what they had to say. Not they were, they had the pulpit and I needed to listen to the, you know, the dominant spectacle, but that they were, you know, that Elliot was this Catholic from the Midwest who was partly uh, a mystic and, and Larkin was just in his little twisted furtive world. And the problem is when I got to Larkin's diaries, when I got to Elliot's letters, when I found out more about his mistreatment of his wife, I couldn't bifurcate it entirely because the thing that I had mistaken for fertile and maybe had once been fertile idiosyncrasies that lead to a really interesting vision, at least in Larkin's case, really grounded out with me when I read his like masturbating and di women hating diaries. Where what I, I feel first... about Philip Roth and then it was also yes. the same thing. I went through the same thing with like Robert Frost. Okay, amazing. So, right. So you, <laughs> you, you right. So you, you, you know, and Louis C.K. Speaking of onanism, so you know, you go to go to Larkin's thing, and you think, oh, this thing that I thought was really punk and interesting. And by the way, people have had this now with uh, with the Sex Pistols and Morrissey and the other now right wing punks that they um, that you know the thing you thought was really kind of twisted and cool is that was actually kind of banal. And that like on second reading, some of the Larkin poems hold up and bring something new. And some of them just, there's too much torque put on them by his uh, contempt for women, frankly, that I've heard other places. It's no longer original because I can see that fear. Okay, now at the same time, I, and, and I, you know, too much to say about this, but that there are things that certain groups of, of people whose ideologies are, um, not not congenial to me, like say libertarians, <laughs> that they're afraid of, right? They have fears and the fears I understand. And those fears, and you can almost, I can, I can almost do this with fascists too, kind of fears of disorder, fears of other things. I can get there. Um, and I can listen to like Italian fascisti uh, rhetoric, uh, kind of just trying to see how their particular fear gives them an idiosyncratic view of the world. You know, like the libertarians that came out and said, I don't know about this. We have to stay in our houses and we're ticketed if we exercise our constitutional right to assemble. That's, you know, I don't know. I'm not such a like Cuomoite that I'm just like, everyone should be sent locked into their houses. I mean, come on. So I, sometimes I get to a certain sympathy with a set of arguments by first kind of seeing that, you know, that's a legitimate fear. That's a legitimate fear that I can identify with. Fear of disorder, fear of squalor, you know? It doesn't lead me to start the, the you know, to register as a fascist, but it also um, it makes me slow down and listen to arguments where they um, seem interesting. Yeah. All right, there you have it. Virginia Heffernan, <laughs> get ready to register as a fascist. That's right. But <laughs> fascist <laughs> curious. <laughs> All right. I no, have a, no, I was going to say she's libertarian curious. I have a really important Wait, we are question not for Pat. We cancel each other on the show. That happens later. <laughs> no, no, no. I was, I was being uh, <laughs> um, Okay. Uh, I have a really important question for Pesca because this has been bothering me for the five years you've been doing this show. Uh, and for those of you who don't 
listen to the gist. It is like one of my two or three favorite pod daily podcasts out there. And I listen to it. I get behind sometimes and then I have to skip a bunch to catch up. But I listen to it really, really regularly. And here's the thing I want to know. How do you produce the spiel? At the end of the podcast, and increasingly there's a kind of mini spiel at the beginning of the podcast. Which is, yeah, too long is what you're saying, yes. Well, no, no, no. I kind of like it. You got the interview sandwiched between these two monologues. But these monologues are, uh, first of all, they're really in your voice. They're, you know, it sounds like talking to you. But they're also in full paragraphs, you're not stumbling over words, you're not, you don't appear to be improvising. And so my question is, are you writing them out? Are, the, are uh, you scripting them? Or are you recording a shitload more than, and then cutting it down into the form of the spiel? How are you, are you doing this by improvisation and then subtraction? Or are you doing it by scripting? Okay. So if I had my druthers, I'd probably do it by bullet points and then the editors would make me look good, but that would be too onerous on them. So I script it. I used to think it was cheating a little bit, but what is a script other than having a thought in the moment, but then preserving the best version of that thought? So it's not really cheating, is it? It might be No, cheating. no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm pro script in general yeah. when they work which yeah. these do, my, the, reason I, the only reason I was wondering about it is that it's so obviously your voice. You're yeah. actually, when you're scripting, you're writing in the voice that you speak in, which is very yeah. hard to do. Mm -hmm. Well, because I spend, so unlike you, um, where you know, the vast majority of your output has been in writing, with me, it's mostly in speaking. So I think in my speaking voice. And then when it comes time to write something more formally, formally, sometimes we have to take one of these spiels and turn it into a print piece. I, I, don't, I don't like that and I don't find it as easy. By the way, Virginia starts off her show. And I want to say that I think Virginia might be my favorite Slate colleague. I started working at Slate because of all these exciting, intelligent people. And she exactly embodies, ooh, this is a person I just want to talk their ear off every time I see them. But she starts the show, she starts the show with, I don't know if it's a spiel, but it's in her voice and it's, you know, so you often accrue decor, but it's, uh, it's really, really good. The no, stuff before the interview. The thing that Virginia does, which I've never heard anybody else do, is to integrate. So yeah, there's the sort of uh, there's the sort of monologue, which is brief at the beginning of most episodes, but then you'll integrate monologues into questions sometimes, <laughs> and, and we will have like a digression leading into a question about. Ivanka's swan-like neck or, um, you know, you'll, 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 like there are these protracted and extended thoughts, often very funny and often very eccentric that actually lead up to a question which are clearly improvised in the middle of interviews. Do, are these like planned out in advance or are those flights of fancy in real time? Well, first, hats off to Mike because he, when we're, when he's one studio over with me, uh, from me, and I just see him right now, you know, I, I assume everyone can see him, but he's like, you're standing up, right? And you're like, you're, 
you're like, like you're about to lead some calisthenics or something. Like it looks like you, anyway. And he's just like a radio guy, like loud, clear, um, like lots of cadence to his voice. And he really, there's, there was like a slight monotone to some of the early uh, podcasts. And I feel like um, Mike just came in and like brought the kind of Howard Stern or yeah. So anyway, I love, love listening to Mike. Um, I, my podcast, unlike Mike's, is about a single subject. So we, I have to just till the same land over and over again and find new worms and new swan-like Ivanka necks sometime, somewhere buried in the, I don't know what I'm saying, loamy earth. And, um, and so I have an ongoing monologue in my head. Um, I, I'm gonna just presume that Mike and I have in common that when we have a, the choice between the like kind of skill and charybdis of, of total banality and howling madness, we usually opt for the howling madness. And so since I made that, <laughs> that option, I kind of have, you know, Ben, I know you, Kate also, I know you do too. You're on Twitter. You're sort of, they're just ideas spinning all the time with everyone. And you know, an epigram will occur to you or a question will occur to and you. And you draft it and you wait a few hours to make sure that you're not drunk. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> I. <laughs> and then you send it. I, yeah, I should if do that, that had but... been the case, Kate, baby cannon would never have existed. Really? Uh, <laughs> now we know. <laughs> I miss baby cannon. Wait, before, instead of tricks of the trade, can I ask you a, a baby cannon question, Ben? Sure. So that was such a wonderful way of organizing our experience. The idea that there was a tick, 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 like a short fuse and that every now or long fuse and every now and then like a kind of minor explosion would come in the case of the people versus Donald Trump. But now there are no baby cannons and I'm having trouble organizing my sense of, I feel like I've lost the plot of this kind of, ben, you know, right? You, for Virginia and for everyone who's a fan of baby cannon, could you do like a, like a 12 gun salute or something? Passover of the baby cannons. I mm. will figure out how to, yeah. let me, uh, while we're chatting, I will see if I can find a, a, a Baby Cannon video to play. But look, Baby Cannon had two <laughs> origins. One was accidental and was just kind of a joke. But as people got really into Baby Cannon, I realized that it actually had a serious role to play, which is exactly the one that you're describing. There were a lot of people like Louise Mensch out there who were riling people up about, frankly, bullshit. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of shysterism going on and people could not figure out the difference between serious journalism mm -hmm. that made a contribution that advanced the ball that told us something we didn't know. And people like, you know, talking out of their asses. And so I thought like Baby Cannon became this very kind of simple somewhat humorous heuristic where it was just a way for, you know, a voice in this, me that some people regarded as a voice of authority to say, mm -hmm. read this one, this one's worth your time. Yeah. Like, yeah. like and it was meant to be just that. Um, I kind of retired it after the Ukraine thing mm -hmm. because I think in 
uh, I didn't want it to be a sort of anything that I thought you should read about that's, you know, disparaging of Donald Trump. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted it to be like a, a useful real-time guide to the Russia scandal and what's important in that. Mm -hmm. and right. what, belo what belongs in the canon, if you will. Exactly. Yes, yes exactly. that's right. It's well so done, well done. <laughs> and it, it, they weren't takes. <laughs> The booms weren't takes. No, they were you know? read this. They, right, it was read this, and they were they they were installments in this growing document, um, which were which which you know turned out to be this in extraordinary document, and then ended with the Republican cowardice not to even hear it. Right, um, it, it it was the last boom didn't it like fizzled the fuse didn't go out. Um, yeah. Okay, I have another. Uh, not trick of the trade question, but just like who who you guys are question. Um, I I think, and I've podcasted through this whole period as well, although in a very different way and in a much lower profile way than you guys do. Um, that one significant part of podcasting is is personal therapy and i'm curious for both of you is the podcasting how much of it is the is is the body of self-expression that is getting you through this period and how much of it like what's the weight of it that is kind of what clinicians would call journaling and what's the weight of it that's, that's, you know, simple news or, or commentary? For me, mostly, um, if I had these thoughts and didn't have a place to put them, it would be very frustrating. But the great majority of that, it's, it's the thing to do. And if the thing that I did was to be a doctor or an EMT, and I got to do that and felt that I was doing my job, it would serve the exact same therapeutic role as this. Um, and maybe a little less so if I were a teacher and the things that I was teaching wasn't on the subject that I was so obsessed with, maybe that would uh, bother me more. But I don't, I don't think of the uh, podcast as really helping me on an emotional level. But then again, we've established where I am in terms of emotional <laughs> levels. But the intellectual output, uh, having the intellectual outlet, that's really important. I, I do like a good one afterwards. I say, you know what? I said what I wanted to say and I felt good about it. What about you? Well, I was the gist of therapy for me. So it goes a different, it also goes other directions. Um, I think sitting alone in the studio, and it's a little different now that we're doing it here, but maybe there is something akin to like traditional psychoanalysis where you're just kind of talking into a void and trying to imagine who needs to hear what I have to say, if anyone, and who would be interested. And I, I'm just talking about the monologues because the interviews really do feel like like a quite intimate conversation, you know, just each other's voices. Um, but the, but the monologues, it is really interesting to try to imagine, um, like who's listening, you know, and kind of like what they need and what they want and what how they want information doled out to them. Like currently, I'm just like a student of Governor Cuomo who delivers information. It turns out in exactly the order in the cadence, in the broken record style that I need it right now. 
I mean, nothing makes my immune system feel more robust than a press conference from him. So how he knows what we want, how he knows what Amer that Americans want this combination of the truth. He's made it very clear that, you know, the worst thing in the world is the feeling that you're being deceived. That's worse than bad news, which is yeah. such a simple way to put the last four years of our lives. It has been just so disturbing to be lied to over and over again. Um, and now we have someone saying he gets it. The feeling of being deceived is bad for the health. Um, and then he goes on to deliver the facts and then he gives his personal opinion with a bunch of platitudes on his PowerPoint that can somehow bring me to tears now. And what I think is he just understands his audience so much. So in the effort to fathom my audience, and this seems like it happens in psychoanalysis, sort of are trying to figure out who are you talking to when you talk to the therapist? And the therapist is supposed to recognize in the, in the old style psychoanalysis, recognize, oh, I'm your dad in this. What you need is a forgiving father. What you need is a nourishing mother. Um, and so when I'm, I think when I'm thinking of the listener, idealizing the listener or imagining their, them with needs, I'm reflecting on a little bit what I have to give in the world. Maybe that's sort of abstract, but sometimes you, you get a little nutty alone in the studio, as you guys know, soundproof room, just you, you know? So we have time for a couple more questions. If you want to ask a question, uh, stick it in the Q&A and we'll bring you on. Kate, do you have any uh, uh, end stage questions? Yeah, I love both of your, your formulations, but Virginia, I'm going to like answer yours, which is like what oh, yeah. we love about Cuomo, which was yeah. I think like, um, I am a deep believer in art imitating life and life imitating art, which is like, I basically think that we wait for like the Jed Bartlett of the future right now, that there's an entire generation that was literally, and I like, I know it sounds like really kind of, really kind of basic uh, to say this, but I really do think that there are people, like you said, like there's something about how Andrew Cuomo speaks to me that speaks to me in this way. And it's like, well, are you primed for that? Are you primed ah. for that by like this entire, you're primed for that because he's speaking to you in this rhetoric that is like completely, completely like um, referencing and kind of drawing from like the, yeah. the type of rhetoric that we like saw in the West Wing or like yeah. any like dramatic like or Independence Day for that matter. <laughs> like yeah. that there's yeah. just kind of all of this, the grandiose type of like, be, like behavior. And I really wonder, like, and one of the things that I think that makes liberals and good-minded people fall down and raise questions about the way that Trump talks and what Trump does is that they have, they like, the rhetoric doesn't parse. Yeah. The rhetoric yeah. doesn't parse with what, like, they're used to hearing and what they want to hear from their leaders. So actually, Mike yeah. had a really good monologue about that the other day, comparing Trump to uh governors not on the substance of what he was saying but just on his his ability to be communicative at all yeah um, he doesn't say anything no yeah. he is the he is the worst and i think jim justice <laughs> is the second worst but i com i compared him to west virginia's jim justice and justice is so much better in so many ways i also did a thing where before chris cuomo came down with corona i said to myself what is it about their dynamic that's so wonderful and I wanted to mm. actually call out to script writers to figure it out but I didn't have time for that because then Chris had corona that and makes so me I happy to hear that you thought that because I do think it's it's like it's all about the speech writing yeah, yeah. 
And I think it's also something to do with mass. I mean, he always refers to his father. There's the table or the altar, the fact that he's not standing, Andrew's not standing, he's sitting. That's uh, a break oh. with the way we're normally experiencing that's it. Really good and point. The fact, yeah, and the fact that there are a couple stations of the cross that he always gets to, but then he folds in that day's, um, that day's sermon. I think that there's a, and, and he talks yes. about love a lot. He talks about love a lot. I mean, I'm, yeah. I don't know if you call it a lax Catholic or a not Catholic, yeah. Yeah, he's like the, loving. Yeah. He's Vatic, he's very Vatican to yes. Leo Biscaglia, Italian. I really recognize the Italianness of all of it. And I'm so I, so uh, sorry, Ben, how Catholic this got on the no. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm totally down with that. It, it's in fact a perfect Mike's right. Mike's right. <laughs> it's a perfect transition to the question I'm gonna uh, I wanna wrap up with, which is Virginia, you are a member of the single most in religiously interesting household I could imagine. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Which is that you are Episcopalian mm -hmm. raising two Orthodox Jewish children. Is that <laughs> correct? Um, uh, Susanna, I don't know. My daughter is, uh, is, is not yet a bat mitzvah and she, she'll decide. But um, yes, I converted when I got married and then I converted back to Episcopalianism, which I grew up with um, when I got divorced. And so my son gets to call himself matrilineally Jewish, which is technically true. Um, although what the Israeli rabbinate would think of a, a, a brief conversion that Judaized <laughs> my uterus for a second and a half, um, I don't know. But, um, but uh, yeah, so he's, um, he's, uh, he's become quite observant. He's more observant than his father. Um, you know, he, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he does all the stuff. He does all the stuff. Um, right. he wears so, the yarmulke and, and this is what he's done. Well, this isn't so, Jewish. I'm not saying this is Jewish, but he did start a hedge fund for it during his, during his homeschool. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So here's my question. Yep. <laughs> Passover Easter. How does yeah. it work? Well, see, divorce is good for that. In fact, having a having having an interfaith um, uh, marriage works well in divorce when you're dividing up the holidays, because I always get what David calls December 25th, just done, because December 25th is nothing to him. And what do I know about Tisha B'Av? You can have Tisha B'Av, Ben. You can have my kids for two bishvat. I'm so, laughing because I know that's a thing to laugh at, but I don't actually know what that is. <laughs> Such is the power of Jewish comedy that just saying yeah. Tisha B'Av. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, learning. What is this, Shavuot? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, oh my God, good job. Say some nonsense words from the back of your throat and I'll laugh. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, yes, it's um, it's complicated, but it's it, it really actually, I mean, back to our original, it's, it might not be fun, but it's extraordinarily interesting. Um, and, uh, and you know, he's just a great kid. Susanna likes the Hebrew and so she does that too. And I don't know, be, I think because he's so sure of his own religious identity, um, uh, we went to Bloomsday in Dublin and um, he wasn't sure whether wears yarmulke or not. And then someone told him that Leopold Bloom, you know, the protagonist in Ulysses is Jewish. And so he decided that he was like this great Irish Jew that could walk around <laughs> Dublin and I don't know. So there've been some nice moments like that. We're, come on, we're like a hybrid nation. It's a good thing. Wait, I'm gonna awesome. send your kiddo something on Bloom Day every year. That'll be nice. Yes. Oh yes, exactly. 
we should wrap up because I got to go have a Seder, um, which means finishing the matzo balls and all that. And I have jazz. to go watch more episodes of Cheers. Yeah. Um, well, Ben, Chag Sameach. Thank you. Uh, um, <laughs> Chag Sameach to all who are celebrating. And um, uh, I was going to say happy Seder day. Is that not what you say? <laughs> <laughs> it's what you say. Okay, sorry. <laughs> thank you. Um, all right. Uh, uh, thank you to Mike and Virginia for joining us. Thanks to all who tuned in or will tune in over the next uh, uh, several days. You guys were super uh, We will be back tomorrow at five. We don't know with whom yet, but that's kind of what tomorrow's for. And uh, until then, you know, you can't have fun, but in lieu of fun, we'll be here tomorrow. Thanks for hanging out with us, everyone. It was yeah, thanks thank for having you. us. You guys. Take Bye. Care. <laughs>